in the last five years, you have turned Greek yogurt, which meant nothing to anyone, into a massive business. How did this really start for you? How did you create this? Help other entrepreneurs right now. You know, I never went to business school. I never worked for anyone before. I don't have an experience of running businesses. You never got a paycheck from any other corporate? No. No. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we were just listening to an interviewer speaking with Shabani yogurt founder Hamdi Waylakaya, a Turkish immigrant who indeed took Greek yogurt from virtually non-existence in American culture to a dominant staple in literally just a few years. Its market share from less than 1% of all yogurt sold in 2007 to get this, more than 50% in 2013. There may not ever have been anything like this in terms of an industry and a revolution in an industry. Now, yeah, it's yogurt, but my goodness, it's a big category, as you'll find out in this remarkable story. We're excited that Hamdi is the latest profile in our American Dreamer series. And we love this series. Our favorite, by the way, on the American Dreamer series, our great hour spent with auto racing legend Mario Andretti. And go to our website at ouramericannetwork.org. Listen to that hour. Mario spent an hour with us, actually more, and we, we captured one of the great American dreamer stories. He came from Italy with nothing and turned himself and the family name into one of the great auto racing names in world history. And we'll start this story by hearing Hamdi talk about his early life. This clip comes from his commencement address at the University of Albany, a school he attended when he immigrated to the United States, but a school that he never graduated from. I came from a small town east of Turkey. Even in Turkey, you cannot find it in the map, next to Euphrates River. And when I make my way up here, as 22, 22 years old young man, spoke no English, had not much money, and I was confused, I was scared, I had a ton of question marks in my head. I really didn't know what the next day is going to be like. And I remember walking around the campus here in downtown. The only escape I had from my worries, going down to the, state, uh, the field, watch the soccer uh, team playing or uh, getting ready. I loved the game when I grew up. And I would always think, what if I can be part of this team? Wouldn't that be awesome? But then, 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 in the evening, I would go back to the farm that I was working with a small sandwich from a steward's store, and then the next day, we'll come back. I couldn't afford or neither I have time to stay in the college to graduate because that was my dream to tell my mother I actually graduated from an American university. But I continue. The way that I grew up in the eastern Turkey in a farm and raising sheep and cows and, and working with my family, and when I came to upstate New York, it felt like a home. You know, it was the same landscape, same people, I felt home. 
And later on, I realized in order to get best out of yourself, you have to feel home. So true. At one point, his father came to visit and said, quote, They don't have very good feta cheese here. You should make cheese. Hamdi thought this was nuts. He didn't come all the way to America to make cheese. But that's what he did, barely breaking even and calling it two years of the most challenging days of his life until he ran across something that felt like it had more promise to it. I got a, uh, an ad on the paper that said, fully equipped yogurt plant for sale. I throw it to my garbage can. It's a true story. And then 20 minutes later, I picked that letter. I said, I wonder what this is all about. And I called the person. And I went to visit the plant the next day. It turns out it was a craft plant. It was there for 70 to 80 years. And a small community. And this was the end of it. They were going to close it. 55 people were going to lose their job. It was the saddest day for the community. I felt like somebody died in the community. When I left, I said, this price is really cheap. I should buy this place. And I called my attorney. I said, I just saw a plant. It's an awesome price. I want to buy it. He said, now, this is the largest food company closing the factory. Here's the largest food company getting out of yogurt category. Who the hell are you <laughs> to think that you could do something out of it? If there was something, they could have done it. I said, you're right. I forget about the idea, but the next day I called him again. So finally, he tried to convince me. He told me, you have a, another big problem. He said, you have no money. Uh, that's not a big problem. You could always figure it out. August 15, 2005, I had a key for this old factory, and I hired five people from that 50 by. I remember the days I was in the campus. I said, Polish cow. What did I do again? How am I going to turn this around? And what he did next, you're about to hear. We're talking about the life of Hamdi Oilakaya. And this is one great American Dreamer segment. This is Our American Stories. More with Hamdi's story after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we're back with our American Dreamer series, which is always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And Job Creators Network is the champion of small business owners. And those small business owners, of course, trying to turn their businesses into bigger businesses. And that is what the American Dream is all about. Self-reliance and man, living your own dream, starting your own thing, and making it happen. And we're on the story of Hamdi Oylakaya. And he, of course, is the Chobani yogurt founder and a Turkish immigrant in upstate New York who finds out that Kraft Foods is shutting down and selling their yogurt plant. And he's crazy enough to buy it and enter a space the world's largest food company was getting out of. And crazy enough to dream up the great Greek yogurt brand Chobani, as we said before. Before Hamdi walked into this plant for the first time as its owner, he made sure he did something with the people he'll never forget. Just before we walked in, we took a picture with that five people that I hired first time. Those five people were five of 55 who worked in that plant for 15, 20, uh, 20 years. I have to mention their name because it's very, very important for our Chobani story and also important that these names, these, these faces, these people, what they do every day is, 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 is what this country is all about. It's Maria who was there for uh, answering calls for 15, 15 years. Rich was uh, a production manager. Mike uh, was the maintenance person who worked there and retired and came back to work. Frank was the wastewater guy. Mustafa is the yogurt maker and myself. This, this, this little town, South Edmiston, very lonely, very lonely road, middle of nowhere, and there's a bar across the street from that plant. It's called Croches. And the people who went to that bar is the bikers with the tattoos and you know, scary looking. They were nice, but I was scared. <laughs> and this is the environment that we started. This small town where he started, Chobani, had only 1,000 people living there. And Hamdi frequently says that one of the greatest attributes of America is the spirit and the resilience of our small towns. And once they walked into that factory, he and his five employees now had to do something. But what? They're looking at me as if I have the magic answers to these people. And one of them, Mike, he said, so what's now? I said, we're going to go to the Ace store, and we're going to buy some white paints, and we're going to paint the walls outside. He said, those walls hasn't been painted for the last 15 years. Don't you have anything else to worry about? I said, but they don't look good. We need to do something about it. He said, do you have any other plan than painting the walls? I said, no. But my friends, one of the best things I've done in 2005, in summer of 2005, is start painting the wall. I didn't have a lot of answers, and I didn't have an idea, but that summer, we painted those walls best than ever. It's still there. But along the way, I came up with more ideas. I came up with what I am going to do. I started searching, 
And it reminded me this word that in Turkish, the poet that lived in Turkey, Rumi, says, if you start walking the way, the way appears. Here is one of those moments from Chobani's early days that he does remember. This is after spending two whole years perfecting their yogurt and many nights sleeping over in the factory so they could keep working on their product. So here you are, you're, you're working almost two years, all your dreams, all your time, everything, you put it into this cup. It's the first time you're shipping to a customer. The customer is in kosher store in Long Island. It's 200, 200 cases, and me and my sales guy and everybody, we packed it in a four-lane filler uh, all that night. And I'm outside at night. It was about 9 o'clock. And uh, having a cigarette, talking to Kyle, I said, so Kyle, what are we going to do now? He said, well, I guess we're going to go sell, sell this thing. And he shipped that product next day to, uh, to the store. The week that I waited was the longest week I can ever remember. Now, somebody's going to sell me end of that week is you get something good or you sell something decent, awesome, or nobody's buying. Because this is the first time that we're going to see what's happening in the real world. So I called the guy, God bless him, the next week, and I said, how are you doing? How's the product is doing? It's a small store. He said, I'll tell you, your packaging is so different. People pick it, and they, I'm selling it. I said, is it the same people are buying it, or is it different people are buying it? It's important for me. He said, basically, same people are buying it, and they're telling other people to buy it. So I'm going to give you another order. That was his 450 cases. This is a good sign, really good sign. I'm not dancing and you know, um, uh, partying yet, but it's a really encouraging sign. They would sell all of those 450 cases as well, and another store added them, and Hamdi felt like they were now ready for larger distribution. If you start a startup, you know, yogurt or food, you normally go to the natural aisle. I told him, no, let's go to a big, like, shop ride or a chain store. And he says, Hamdi, we have to pay fee to put the product into the shelf. We don't have that kind of money. It's $20,000, $30,000 per cup to put into the shelf. So, so we go to the buyer in ShopRite, and then we say, you know, we have four, four or five, strawberry, blueberry, peach, vanilla, and plain, five. So we want to put five SKUs into your shelf, you know. $200,000. $200,000? We don't have $200,000, but here's what we're going to do. We promise this is going to sell. <laughs> it's, a, it's a true story. We promise this is going to sell. Put it in the shelf. Every week, you can cut you know, 10% from this $200,000. So, so the guys laugh like hysterically. This must be something that never came up before. And he says, so what if it doesn't sell? We said, we're going to give you the factory. <laughs> it's a true story. 
The guy laughed even further, but they liked, he liked us. This is okay. Week later, week or two weeks later, the same guy called. Now, we have five SKUs. Yogurt aisle is dominated by two big brands, Danon and Jenner, your plate in Danon. It's huge. And not huge, it's good enough, but we are in the right upper corner, five cups hanging right there. I mean, you really have to look at it. But the cups were so different. I sleeved them, you know, the graphic. I did everything for those five cups. So even if you don't pay a lot of attention, when you walk by, you will, you'll see it. Right now, they all copied me. Everything looks similar. But at that time, it was very different. <laughs> so the guy calls two weeks later. He said, I don't know what kind of crap you put into these cups. <laughs> Do not tell me. But I cannot keep it in the shelf. It was an eye-opening. At that moment, I realized that this was not going to be about selling. It was going to be about, can I make it enough? Greatest realization. This is what's going to happen. And that moment, I decided that my next, I don't know how many years, is going to be in the factory. I'm not going anywhere because this is about making. And he understood that insight. It wasn't about selling. It was about making and how to get it good, how to make a lot of it, how to get the price down. And this is one, one remarkable American dreamer story. The story of Hamdi Woylakaya, the Chobani yogurt founder, one of our American dreamer stories, an American dreamer series, always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, and nobody champions the work, the plight of small business owners better than the great folks at Job Creators Network. More on this great American story, this great American dreamer's story, after these messages. American stories, and we continue with a terrific story, a terrific American dreamer's story, Hamdi Wolakaya, and his story is remarkable. The founder of Chobani Yogurt, him challenging two giants in the food business. And by the way, usually what happens in these stories is the guy brings up that company to a certain level, and in come the big guys, and they buy it, and then they market it, and they distribute it. Not a case with Chobani. And by the way, as always, these American Dreamer stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. There's no better place, no better institution fighting for small business and small business owners, fighting the red tape that gets in the way of small business owners, tax policy that stops small businesses from growing, 
They're the heartbeat, the lifeblood of America, small business owners. And my goodness, the hurdles they face just trying to stay open and keep their doors open. It's never been tougher. And so Job Creators Network is out there fighting the fight for small business owners all across this great country. And so here's Hamdi in 2014 speaking at an Inc. magazine conference about their wild growth and how they changed the yogurt landscape against all odds. We have gone from five people to 3,000 people. We went from like $3 million in, you know, in 2007 sales to over a billion dollars in sales in 2012. We... <clears throat> We invested almost $900 million by by end of 2012 in the factories. We built the world's largest factory in Idaho. I bought a business in Australia. That was my first trip to Australia. I bought the damn thing. And I started the the business there. We sponsored Team USA. And we became number one brand in the country. And we we stayed 100% independent until the end of 2012. This whole thing started from that Sadat Muslim old factory with one dream, with one product, like yogurt. It's been around for hundreds of hundreds of years. So within this time, I have gone through a lot of realization. But the biggest one was I get to know myself. I was this guy, I had no idea I was a businessman, and I was an entrepreneur, or I was a marketer, or I was a, I can even speak. I didn't know any of these. And this is the power of this journey, is I think the most important one, is what it does to us individually. And then what it does to surroundings after. It's, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's nothing like it out there. So I feel extremely lucky. I wouldn't change this for anything. Would I want to eat pizza for three, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for five years again? No. <laughs> but I'm glad I've gone through this. So I, from the day one, you know, people ask, what was your reason of studying? What was your purpose? What was your mind? What was in this? And if anybody answers these questions to you, boom, 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 it's and you know it, you know, we don't have to. In the end, it's like, uh, I want to I climb this mountain. I want to cross this ocean. Whatever that is, it's just like you, you throw yourself into a journey. And during this time, you find your reason, your purpose, what your plan is, and all everything else. Um, but you have to, I found out that you have to find a way to elevate yourself, to be above common sense. Because we cannot do what we have done with the mirror or with the glasses of common sense. What they teach in the schools, what the report says, what the market research says, we cannot do it with that view. We have to think something differently. And that is usually an emotional shift. And that emotional shift comes from passion, from personal reasons, from personal problems. So when you're elevated, then you're not looking at opportunity or problem or a dream from a common, uh, common perspective. If somebody would tell me when I was painting that wall, he says, Hamdi, five years from now, you know these five people, it'll be about 3,000. 
This factory you have here that has four lanes is going to have 14 lanes. You're going to have two million cases coming out of this fract. You see that bar out there? It will be wiped out. You're going to build 160,000 square feet warehouse, and you're going to build a million square warehouse in Idaho, and guess what? You'll still be you know, independent all that stuff. I will look at them, guys, and why have you been smoking? In a common sense, that's not possible. Because a buying a filler, installing it, it takes 12 months. One filler, if you order today, by the time you install it, it takes 12 months. How are you going to build 14 fillers when you have only $1 million to work with and grow the business to a billion dollars? It's not possible. But that's common sense. But when you got in it, you don't even realize what you're doing. It, it just keeps happening. It's true. And he later said, by the time you look back, you say, my God, how far we've come. Hamdi says his story could only have happened in America. He's enjoyed Chobani's successes, but he says that what's most important, what he's relished the most, is how it's enabled him to help others. The company gives 10% of all of their profits to charity, and yet it's not the actual amount that matters to him, but what it produces, a very simple but powerful thing to him, bringing a smile to the beneficiaries' faces, an intangible feeling that money just can't measure, and that they can then pass on to even more people. Only a year after founding Chobani, he began intentionally hiring refugees who were escaping tyrannical regimes around the world, and now employs more than 300 of them. More recently, he discovered that only 1% of those seeking refuge were resettled by the UN. He blames government for decades of incompetence that created this crisis and is pleading with the American business community, those who have proven to be effective to join him in employing refugees. And he says, once they're employed, well, once they have that job, they're no longer refugees. It's why he's committing over one half of his $1.69 billion fortune to the refugee cause. And in 2016, Hamdi decided to look even closer to home. He owns 100% of Chobani, but has freely decided to give away 10% of the ownership to his employees a potential windfall if the company is sold or goes public of several hundred thousand dollars for each employee and millions for those with him at the very start. Here's Hamdi speaking about why he did this. It's been my dream. I'd like to get back to them and say, you and this community and this country has been so great to us and I'd like to return that favor back to you. And here's Chobani employee number six, Terry Edmonds, speaking to NBC News about it and crying, and crying more about what this journey has meant to all of them and just being appreciated. That more than the money itself. I think about how little we started and how hard all these people worked to, to bring this to what we have. And I'm very proud. And we'll close our celebration of Hamdi's life with the closing of his commencement address before the university he didn't have enough money to graduate from, the University of Albany. I didn't care what the others told me about me. I didn't care what they told of me, how crazy I was, how weak I was, how much less English I had. didn't matter. Because when I closed my eyes, I remember how my mother saw me.
I was her son, and I was the best. And what a way to close things out. What a memory to keep in deep in your mind. The mother's love. What an American dreamer story. Hamdi Woylakaya, founder of Chobani, part of our American Dreamers series, as always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we tell all kinds of stories here on this show about everyone from international celebrities to folks you've never heard of because each of those stories gives us a little window into a life if we can't walk a mile in someone else's shoes we can at least hear a story about it Joey Cortez did some great work for us as an intern and then he went back to school at Boston College while reading the BC student newspaper The Gavel Joey came across an inspiring story from a young woman named Kitty Sargent. She's in the B.C. class of 2016, and so many people talk about this upcoming college generation, and I think rather pejoratively, and it's a shame. And we don't think this way or act like this on our show. Kitty kindly recorded her story, and Joey produced it for us. Let's take a listen. This is Kitty Sargent on Being Pretty. I walked into my 7th grade math class the day after I got a haircut, feeling like a million bucks. My hair was straight and shiny, my smile stretched from ear to ear. I felt pretty. Beautiful, even. That's saying a lot for an awkward 7th grader. But suddenly, a voice cut through the happiness I was feeling. This was girl Gabrielle. Wow, kitty. If only you got contacts, then you'd actually be pretty. Wait. So I wasn't pretty, but I could be. I had gotten glasses in fifth grade and wore them every day for the next 10 years. I tried contacts, but never liked them. So I stuck with my four eyes. As I got older, I seemed to have it all together on the outside, but my self-confidence plummeted. Pretty girls weren't supposed to wear glasses. It didn't bother me as much in high school, but that changed once I got to BC. My insecurities about my glasses was compounded by a host of other body images and appearance-based concerns. Never before had I been around so many people who cared so much about what they looked like. Diets weren't a thing in my high school, but in college, carbs were suddenly evil. The elliptical became a close personal friend of mine at BC. And shouldn't that have made me pretty? Shouldn't it have made me happy? The other girls certainly seemed happy, and they were pretty too. My sophomore eight-man had dieting competitions to hold us accountable with charts posted in the kitchen and planks doled out to those who messed up. The app I used the most on my phone was my calorie counter. I was doing it right, but I still didn't feel pretty. 
my body image issues were also largely driven by a need to overcompensate for shortcomings in other areas. At the end of my freshman year, I found a lump in my throat that was growing quickly. It was a thyroid nodule, and it continued to grow all throughout my first semester of sophomore year. The doctor wanted to wait and monitor how big it got before making any decisions on what to do with it. But this wait-and-see attitude drove me crazy. I was trying so hard to do everything right, and I still wasn't in control. It was like my body was laughing at me. You want to fit in? You want to feel pretty? You don't want that confidence to be fake? Well, here's the curveball. The watch-and-see method led to a decision to remove the nodule in March of my sophomore year. But I knew about the surgery in January, which led to two months of agonizing waiting. It was in this two-month window that I started a gratitude practice. I needed to find a silver lining to come to terms with the lump in my throat, so I hoped that practicing gratitude would help me to do so. Every morning I would wake up, sit down holding my mug of tea, and list off what I was grateful for. My parents, my friends, and BC. But as the weeks went by, my, cra- my practice grew more routine. I'm grateful to be a woman in a society that respects me as an equal contributor. I'm grateful to live in a democracy where my vote, my opinion, matters. I'm grateful that the sun rises in the east every morning. And one morning during my reflection, a new thought popped into my head. I was grateful for my body, because it lets me run and jump and sing and hug. It lets me explore the world and learn new things. In that moment, I wasn't grateful for how my body looked, but for what it did. That morning was the first morning in many years that I liked my body. The surgery came and went. I was back at school uh, a week later when my surgeon called. It wasn't just a lump. It was cancer. I was shocked. It wasn't supposed to be cancerous. I wasn't supposed to get cancer, especially as a sophomore in college. My body didn't love me, and I didn't love my body. But then there was that nagging gratitude practice where I discovered all these great things that I adored about what my body could do. As my treatment ran its course over the next few months, I found the chance to marvel at modern medicine. A hundred years ago, I probably would have died. But with the aid of medical treatment, my body found the strength to fight back. I was declared cancer-free on July 1st, 2014. I was free from doctors, needles, and medical words too long to pronounce. I was free to be me again, and not just a girl with cancer. Somehow, by getting sick, by being pushed so far into loathing my body and what it had, quote, done to me, I stopped hating my body. Obviously, I experienced setbacks. I still have days where I criticize how I look. I got LASIK surgery the same summer that I finished my cancer cancer treatment. And I won't pretend that my glasses disappearing didn't help my confidence. But generally, I found I couldn't hate something so incredible that had fought back and won against this terrible disease. Now, when I eat healthy foods, it's to nourish my body so it can perform its very best. Not because I'm counting calories. When I work out, it's not to lose weight. It's just nice to feel strong after feeling so weak in the past. The more I forced myself to love my body, the less forced it felt. The more I forced myself to act confident, the less it felt like an act. 
I went abroad to Paris and ate more bread and cheese and wine than I had in the previous two and a half years at BC. I realized that good food isn't evil, it's heavenly. The French would call it a raison d'être, a reason to be. Being away from BC for a whole semester also showed me that I needed to want things because I myself truly wanted them. If I didn't want to fit into the BC stereotypes of beauty, then I shouldn't let myself feel pressured to do so. Of course, that's far easier to say when you're six time zones away. Back on campus now, that pressure is still just as present as it was when I, before I went abroad. Sometimes I wish my waist were smaller, my hair less frizzy, my laugh less obnoxious. The list goes on, and the critiques are still as numerous as before. But then I remember what I'm grateful for about my body. I've sung a mass at La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I've climbed the Duomo in Florence. I've gone on sunset jogs along the Seine in Paris. I've beaten cancer. The positives start to outweigh the negatives, and those critical voices seem to get a little quieter each time. The words that one 13-year-old girl forgot five seconds later still occasionally ring in my ears. Am I pretty today? Am I ever actually pretty? I will always be working to shift my conception of self-worth away from just what I look like. But today, I know I can usually look in the mirror and be happy with what I see. With who I see. I see someone who's just a little more confident than she was yesterday. Just a little happier. And today, that's all I need. And great work on that, Joey. And thank you, Kitty, for revealing that part of yourself. And uh, and Faith Faith is 21 on our staff, on our team. I've got an 11-year-old girl, and I've already heard her ask that question to herself in front of a mirror. What goes there? I don't. And I, by the way, I hear this is happening more and more with young men too. Um, but talk about uh, talk about this this body image thing with girls. I think so much of it is comparison. We look at other people and it's, you know, I'm too skinny, I'm too fat. In comparison to who? It's other people. One of my favorite quotes is Theodore Roosevelt. He says, comparison is the thief of joy. Because what are, when we're comparing to other people, we're depressed, we're ungrateful, we're even hateful towards others because we're looking at them thinking they have this while I want that or whatever it is so we may act unkindly. But I love how honest Kitty is and what she says about how okay, I haven't fully overcome this. Like some days it's still hard. Right, right. And some days it's still difficult. And some days I still look in the mirror and wish I was somebody else or I wish my, you know, my chest was bigger, my waist was smaller, I had a thigh gap or something like that. Right. Um, Which most people don't even know what it is, um, guys at least. And so I think I love her honesty because even though she has come so far, she still has to refocus so often. And... I wish that it hadn't been through those difficulties, but I'm so proud of her, and I hope like a lot of other people can learn from what she's Well, shared. if you've got daughters or if you're a woman, um, I know my wife, I don't know anyone who has a woman in their life knows that they're looking in the mirror different than for the most part men look in the mirror because I think we look in the mirror and think, wow, we look wonderful. Losing hair, the belly's getting bigger, and we just go, well, let's have a beer. That's about it. And here on Our American Stories, we talk about everything. But that gratitude practice... I think that's the most important thing in the world. And thanks for that quote as well, Faith, on comparison stripping you of your joy. Because it does in the end. It does. And here on Our American Stories, we love to tell stories about everything and from everyone here 
Well, hopefully you have a different impression of young college folks. Because they ain't any different than we were. They're just growing up in different times. We were all young once. We're older. But my goodness, the self-doubt, the beauty in this young lady's voice. We want to get to know her better. We're going to reach out to her. I think this is a voice we want to hear more from here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to John Lennon, the Beatles, and for the hour, we're going to talk about the fifth Beatle, George Martin, producer extraordinaire, and my goodness, what a life, 30 number one hits in the United Kingdom, 23 number ones in the United States, and he had started his career recording some of the great comedians, including Peter Sellers. There was nothing the guy couldn't do. He died on this day in history. In 2016, and we wanted to start with you hearing from this really almost a gentleman producer, not the kind of guy you'd think was behind perhaps the greatest rock and roll band of all time. And here's George Martin talking about how his entire life, from as long as he could remember, was devoted to music. It's difficult to imagine an existence without music. For me, it's quite impossible. My entire life has been devoted to music. Ever since I started studying the piano as a boy and dreaming of being a great composer and then going on to producing Beatle records and writing film scores and working with some of the finest talents in the world. I, I need music and I don't mean just professionally. I think you'll find to some extent pretty well everybody does. And I think that's true, and that's why we spend so much time on music here. I think Alex had corrected me earlier that St. Augustine had said, when we sing, we pray twice. And I think that's true. George Martin talks about how his love for music began when he heard a symphony orchestra play Debussy as a child at his school. My love affair with music began when I was very young. As a teenager at Bromley Grammar School in South London... I had a musical experience that was to have a profound effect on me. A symphony orchestra arrived at the school to give a concert. They played Debussy's Leprimidi Dinfone. I suppose some of the other boys might have considered it just a couple of hours away from the drudgery of lessons, but I didn't. first time I'd heard or seen a full symphony orchestra, and I was transfixed. Martin here talks about how music is constructed, and the elements being rhythm, melody, and of course, harmony. 
I suppose I've always understood how music is constructed, how it's played and what it sounds like, but there is a lot more to it than that. What I want to do is to try to find out why music means so much to us. It's a complex thing because our response to music is so subjective. On the other hand, there are certain pieces of music which we all love, which bring everybody together. And when we listen to music, three things fight for our attention. Rhythm, melody and harmony. Here, Martin talks about how babies experiment with rhythm long before they learn to talk. Our musical education begins very early in life. Babies experiment with pitch and rhythm long before they learn to talk. Actually, this isn't surprising because our exposure to music begins even earlier. A mother's heartbeat is both felt and heard by a baby in the womb. And the regular sound of breathing is also sensed by the unborn child. And when it's born, it is made further aware of music and rhythm for a surprising amount of its waking hours. We shake rattles to attract and to stimulate them. We rock them gently in order to comfort them. And of course, we sing to them. Martin breaks down the range of tempos that make up rhythm by panning out the beat on a kitchen table. The human brain selects its tempos from the natural rhythms of the human body. Our heartbeat, walking, breathing. And it's a surprisingly narrow range of tempos. If we're listening to a very slow beat, we tend to put in other beats to make ourselves feel more comfortable. That becomes more rhythmic. Conversely, if we have a very fast rhythm we're listening to, we pare it down and concentrate perhaps on one beat in four. If if we're listening to... That's difficult to hear mentally. So we do... Again, it's very much more closely related to our human heartbeat. And that is about the widest range of tempos we can generally deal with. And you're listening to George Martin, The Fifth Beatle. And this was a piece he had produced for the BBC about a decade ago or more. And we're going to hear more from him in the next segment. And then we're going to dig into the Beatles catalog and what made him The Fifth Beatle. And it is fascinating. Uh, I don't know of another producer in any band's history that has been an actual part of the band. Perhaps Paul McGinnis, the manager of U2, but not in the studio, not making creative decisions. He's a business manager and they love him. But there's been nothing like this kind of relationship where literally the producer comes in and helps score, plays the instruments, suggests pathways, and actually solves problems in the studio for the band. George Martin for the hour. 
This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after this, you're listening to George Harrison. He died on this day in history in 2016. He was 90 years old. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And for the hour, the fifth Beatle, George Martin. And we're starting with Martin talking about music, about how it moves his life, how it animates him. And as you're going to hear in the next segment coming up here, some intricacies about music that we may just not have thought of. That human heartbeat, I just never thought of that before. And that was percussion for a kid. And then the rocking and the singing, and it's all there. It's true. It's just all there. And we're playing that, that song again because we had done an hour on Frank Sinatra. And by the way, go to it. It's really a remarkable story, Sinatra's, and particularly how he approached a song. And this had become one of his favorite songs, right up there with anything that the old Tin Pan Alley and Broadway writers had ever come up with, the Lerner and Lowe's and the Harold Arlen's. And he loved in particular the way the chorus just goes to the musicians because there was nothing left to say. And so go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and scroll down and capture that Sinatra. You'll learn some things about him that we didn't know, and particularly thanks to the HBO documentary on Sinatra, which is just terrific. So we pick up George Martin talking about how humans are rhythmical beings, and he talks to Barry Gibb from the Bee Gees about the 120 beat per minute pace of the Stayin' Alive track and how it follows the rhythm of the human heart. We are rhythmical beings and we walk with rhythm. One, two, one, two, one, two, three, four. And when we make music, this forms the basis of most of our tempo. This tempo is 120 beats a minute, the same as our heartbeat when we get excited. It's another natural rhythm, and it's now the standard tempo for all disco music. There's an obsession with beats per minute, which we find quite curious, because I think beats per minute really means how your heart feels or, how, or what makes you get out of your chair and want to dance. So that's a very interesting point, what you were just talking about, walking and feeling, and staying alive is in fact a walking song, it's not a dance song. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in fact, we could probably demonstrate that. And where you can't tell by the way I use my walk, I'm a woman's man, no time at all. Music loud, my women warm, the being kicked around, since I was born, but now it's all right, that's okay, you may look the other way, we can try to understand 
Here's George talking about the rules on what makes a good melody while sitting at a piano. When we're moved by a great piece of music, it's generally the melody that's responsible. Well, are there any rules about what makes a good melody? I think there probably are. I think, first of all, it's got to be dead simple. It's no good wandering all over the keyboard. That won't make a good tune at all. And most important, it's got to be a tune that you can remember. It's got to be something that sticks in the mind. And I've found quite often a good tune has notes which are close together in a falling sequence or a rising sequence, but quite close to each other, so that they will build to a climax halfway through and then fall away again. They have a natural shape to them. I think an example of that is the beautiful melody by Albanoni. Falling sequence, repeated, and then the climax. And then falling away again. By the way, if we had had music instruction like this, as opposed to the compulsory stuff that gets jammed at us, and this is just true for so much education, it just depends on who's teaching you and how you'd actually think about so many things from American history straight down to music. It'd be life-changing. Here's George explaining the exceptions to the rules of melody by usage from a song from the Beach Boys. Of course, there are exceptions to these rules of simplicity. The Beach Boys tune, God Only Knows, seems to wander around quite a bit. And in fact, it's quite difficult to sing and difficult to remember. Another example is a tune by Elgar. Which seems to go all over the place. They seem to be quite chaotic tunes, but we find them very appealing. Now why? Well, I think you'll find that when the harmonies are added, two things happen. First, the harmony seems to define the shape of the melody, and it puts the melody into context. But of course, these are notable exceptions, and I think most great music, in fact, does stick to the rules of simplicity. And that's probably why we often hear one tune it reminds us very much of another. Here's George explaining harmony as the final tool by using God by using God save the Queen as his example. Our national anthem. Not a bad tune, I suppose. But like that, it does sound a bit bare and empty. On the other hand... Mm -hmm. 
becomes a real piece of music. We've added harmonies to our melody. And harmony is the final tool we use after rhythm and melody. Harmony adds color and depth to music. And harmony is the playing of several notes at the same time. But it has to be obviously the right notes in the right combination to make a really pleasant sound. I suppose the piano is probably the best way of demonstrating harmony because it can play many notes at the same time. On the other hand, the human voice can only sing one note at a time. So if we want to make harmony by singing, we have to have more than one person. And here is Martin as he describes the difference between dissonant and consonant harmonies and why we love both of them. Although we talk about one harmony being more pleasing than another, it isn't as clear-cut as it seems. For example, this. A pleasing collection of sounds. But this... That sounds wrong. It's a dissonant. But dissonances have their place in music, too. Listen again to the same chord. It seems that we like harmonies that are dissonant as well as those that are consonant. Harmony isn't just adding chords to a tune. Harmony is its sole component, but it's still very effective. But harmony can give a sense of melody to a, a tune that otherwise has little character of its own. And there it is, a backgrounder on this man, his love affair with music, and a tutorial on music that we, when we stumbled upon this, we knew we had to share it with you. When we come back, we're going to rip through George Martin, his first meeting with the Beatles, what he thought when he first met them, and this epic collaboration. The Beatles were only together... Six or seven years, they crammed out a dozen of the greatest records ever, and then they disappeared, never to be heard from again as a band, individually, remarkable careers, remarkable solo careers, and all of them, to a T, just adored George Martin. Adored him, and we'll, you'll be hearing from the boys themselves, the lads from Liverpool, when we come back, and you'll be hearing the music. And with the Strawberry Fields, you'll be hearing how the song was constructed from beginning to end with George Martin talking us and walking us through it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of George Martin recently passed, born in January 1926, served in World War II as an ace pilot. Doesn't even like to talk about it, but we're going to mention that because we care about such things here. And when we come back, this war hero and this artistic and creative man well, we're going to hear his music right after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you're listening to all the various musical tracks from the Beatles, one thing they never do is repeat themselves. And you'll never hear rhythmic and percussive elements like this in any of their other songs. Ringo is one heck of a drummer, creatively. And so we want to talk about George Martin and his experience with the Beatles. He was an A&R guy, a record guy, and a producer. He'd been doing comedy records, some classical stuff. Not exactly as you could hear from that voice, what one would think of as a rock and roll dude. And John Lennon, in this cut, talks about meeting George Martin for the very first time. George had done little of uh, no rock and roll when we met him, and we'd never been in a studio, so we did a lot of learning together. He had a very great musical knowledge and background. Here's George Martin talking about his first meeting with the Beatles. He wasn't impressed. I first met the Beatles in 1962. I wasn't terribly impressed with the first stuff they did. I couldn't make up the sound. You know, it was something I hadn't heard before. So, yes, They had this wonderful charisma. They, they made you feel good to be with them. Mm. And uh, I thought their music was rubbish. <laughs> well, I don't think that made the hit parade for the Beatles. <laughs> but he said something interesting there. He said they made him feel good. And I think that was what got him there and their charisma. I think he understood that he may have been looking at future stars. Even though he didn't care for the Beatles' music, Martin says they all liked each other personally. Even though they had uh, nothing really behind them, they were still fairly irreverent even in those days, which I, which I loved. You know, I, I, I like a little bit of rebel in people. And I like their sense of humor. Uh, after all, that was my main stock in trade, too. And I guess they quite liked what I've been doing with Peter Sellers and the Goons and that kind of thing. So George Martin was having a hard time trying to figure out who the lead singer of this band would be. But then he had a realization. So I looked at these four guys and thought, well, none of them shines as being above all the others. And I had to make up my mind in my silly mind who the lead singer was going to be. Suddenly I realized I would take them as they were, as a group. The hell with the lead singer. They would be singing together. Love me do. Love me do. Martin then tells a story of when he became endeared with George Harrison after he made fun of his tie in the studio. So we were struggling with the sound a bit. And I said to the boys, after we'd done a few takes of rather nondescript songs, I said, come into the control room and have a listen and see what we've been doing. And uh, if there's anything you don't like, tell us. And George was the one who took the leap. And he said, well, I don't like your tie for a start. And the others were horrified. They thought, God, he's blown it. Uh, but, of course, I fell around laughing. I thought it was, it was so cheeky and so funny that I, I, you know, he endeared himself to me at, at that point. How about that? And then we learn, 
as we were poking around at some of the documentaries and some of the things we had sort of just scampered about on YouTube to find, we started learning about some of the things they'd done. And one one particular story that struck me, which I'm going to try and summarize because the audio was so long, had to do around the song Yesterday, which McCartney had written. And when he was finished with the composition, which he had written with a, with a piano, they were then going to take it to the full band and blow it out as a ballad and sort of a mid-tempo ballad. And George Martin said, you know, I think it deserves strings and only strings. And they, the Beatles looked at them and said, we're a rock and roll band, George. And so he went back home and he tinkered with a, a string arrangement and came back into the studio the next day and imagine this song that you're about to hear arranged any other way we're going to play yesterday if we can and you know what arrangements do is serve the song and this is what George Martin understood and that was just as he understood scoring movies what do you do to make us feel the scene better and in the end, that's what great record producers do, and we love talking about them and with them. And now take a listen to Yesterday. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Now it looks as though they're here to stay Oh, I believe in yesterday Suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be There's a shadow hanging over me Oh, yesterday came suddenly Why she had to go I don't know, she wouldn't say I said Yesterday, love was such an easy game to play. I need a place to hide away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Why she had to go, I don't know. She wouldn't say. Such an easy game to play I need a place to hide away Oh, I believe in yesterday And you can't stop that song And you have to listen to it from beginning to end And the harmonies in that small string section accompany a simple guitar track and a simple vocal track and their biggest selling song of all time. And they credit George and how many songwriters and big pop stars will give credit to some old dude telling him at the time when everything was electric to bring some strings into the world's biggest and best rock and roll band. 
And that's what was so fascinating about this band, the dynamic tension between the young lads and this classically trained genius. And that they acquiesced to him and that he loved to play with them. And he wasn't stodgy with them and he let them play with him and they, you learned from the Thai comment, he wasn't, he wasn't above being heckled by the boys. And there was real camaraderie and love here. And this was a team and a little band of brothers. And when, when this band broke up, it just killed a lot of folks. When we come back, we're going to dig into Strawberry Fields and the making of that song. And you'll hear the master walk us through it. You'll hear the fifth Beatle, George Martin. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of George Martin, celebrated. He recently passed, born January 1926. 30 number one hits in the United Kingdom, 23 number one singles in the United States. More after this. Listening to Paul McCartney on the Abbey Road record. And if you want to see an amazing performance of the backside of this record, when the Kennedy Center honored Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney, Steve Tyler came out from Aerosmith and he just buried this. And I had never really thought that Steve Tyler would be the kind of guy who could do this. And Paul McCartney has to actually get up. And I don't know that Paul McCartney ever wants to sing it again after watching the way Steve Perry did. And all you got to do, I mean Steve Tyler, all you've got to do is Google Tyler and Kennedy Center Honors and McCartney and just sit back. And if you've got a great TV and a great sound system, enjoy. Because it's extraordinary. And that's George Martin's keyboard variation there, getting us through that incredible side of music that is one continued song and who would have thought to do that but George Martin and the Beatles and I think Martin inspired that kind of creativity in the boys and I think they always just wanted to impress him and we learned that about Bear Bryant what was the secret if you remember John Coyle said it Kenny Stabler said it we didn't want to disappoint the coach and I think that's what great leaders in the end do they engender and inspire performance in their men not by force, and certainly not by, by threats, but in the end, by love. And there are many different styles to get you there. And so let's pick up where we left off, talking about Strawberry Fields. And the song was written by John Lennon and credited to Lennon McCartney, but we know 
those of us who know the Beatles well, that for the most part, one of the two lads wrote it, the other would help fix it, and then they just said, you know what, let's share every song together. And then Harrison wrote a couple and here and there. Well, this song was recorded in the place where they recorded so many of their their great songs. And here is Martin, and that's Abbey Road Studios. Here is Martin talking about the process of putting together the different tracks for this opening track to perhaps their greatest record, and that's Sgt. Pepper's. We left that evening, and John thought about it, and Paul thought about it over the weekend. And on Monday, we tackled it again quite differently. John decided he wanted to learn it. It had an introduction for the first time, which was played on that weird instrument, the Mellotron, and became a really key feature. And it started with the chorus, rather than the verse. Strawberry feels immediately, isn't it? Let me take you down. Double track voice right away. Again, all the rhythm instruments on one track. The voices on three and four. But John thought about it said, I think I can do it better than that. He said, I wanted to have a bit more bite in it, brass, strings. So I said, okay, let's give it a whirl. Let's give it a whirl. And that's what I mean, what I was just talking about. Not no, not shut up, kid. I'm the producer. Let's give it a whirl. George Martin goes on to dissect the rest of the track, showing how it would set the psychedelic tone for the rest of this record. Strawberry feels forever. Swarmandela. An Indian instrument that George had brought back, like a kind of harp. They have a marvelous effect. Backward symbol on track one. Always sounds like Russian language to me. Brass stabs and so on, and with the cello. But underlying it all, this wonderful rhythm section. About nine or ten players. Well, we finished up then with a track which was showed the way that Pepper was going to be. This was our first psychedelic track. And Martin says that when they did Sergeant Pepper, they went for broke because they were allowed to do, finally, what they'd always wanted to, to do and whatever they wanted to do. When we did Sergeant Pepper, we were given a license to kill, so to speak, because we were already successful. And I knew that I could do in the studio just what I wanted, and I knew that they wanted to experiment a bit more. So we just let our hair down and went, went for broke. Um, in fact, when I say Pepper, I mean I'm starting off with Strawberry Field, which was the beginning of Pepper, although it wasn't on the album. And that was one of the great songs he did. And if there's a song that symbolized the entire record and the nature of its production the simplicity of its production, and particularly as Martin described in a documentary, where the, where the percussive element sat, and even the keyboards itself were treated more as a percussive instrument, and even the guitar, as you'll listen to. And the song, well, you've heard it a hundred times, we're going to play it in its entirety, and it closes Sgt. Pepper's 
And it's a day in life.
You just don't know what to say. What a song. A song within a song. And by the way, you go into those lyrics and they can mean so much. And so much to you at so many different times in your life. And you can hear George Martin all over that. A life well lived. George Martin died on this day in history. In 2016. And even this signature song... The Cirque du Soleil show built around the song, All George Martin. This is Our American Stories, the life of George Martin for the hour.